Um, him and some other guys are going to go plant in Rancho Cucamonga. That's it. Rancho Cucamonga in it. California. Um, and so this will be probably the last time that he will be here with us uh, before they go and plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just wanted to send him off with some, um, with some love and prayer. So uh, if you wanted to... Yeah, Stephen. Come on. So Stephen is yeah. also going to be um, planting with him. And what's the timeline? Yeah, so we will... Uh, I will move January 10th. We actually are... 11th or 12th, or somewhere around there. My wife has the calendar. Never felt closer um, to you guys. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> One big family. Oh, man. Um, so we will move sometime in mid-January, uh, and then we'll be looking to launch around September 15th with public services. Stephen and his family will be moving, moving in April-ish. March. March-ish. Uh, again, dates are not my thing. Um, and I got September 15th down, though, because that is a day we are praying for and invite you to pray for as we, as we launch. Um, um, you know, there's an interesting thing about being in Southern California, born and raised there. Uh, what you don't do to plant a church is put up some signage and send out some mailers and then a couple hundred people show up. Um, it takes a lot of time, you know, an agricultural illustration to, to work the ground, to turn over the soil, to make disciples, to get to know people. So we're going to take a good long nine or ten months just to be doing the work of prayer, of evangelism, of building relationships in our neighborhoods. Um, and, and I mean, most often, I mean, I I don't know about you when I get mailers maybe it's just the Southern California native in me when I get mailers I'm just like okay that goes straight in the trash um, but you know that again that's just an example of what we're looking at and so just pray for those kind of things for us that that God indeed would go before us um, I think you know as we pray and consider uh, the needs are always there for people and for money and a place to meet and all those kind of things. Those are always there, but um, we were praying several months ago and and in Exodus and, and our pastor talks about this a lot. In Exodus, there's this moment where where God says He's going to give the promised land to the Israelites, but He's not going to go with them. And Moses argues back to God and says, "No, no, no. If you're not there, it's not the promised land." Like, if you don't go before us, this isn't where we want to be. And, and that's how we feel. If we could have endless amounts of money and we want that, we could have a ton of people and we want that, uh, but we could, without God going with us, this isn't a church plant that we want to be a part of. And so pray that God would, he's already there, he's already doing the work that we want him to do and we're praying with him to do, um, but we just want to continually stay submitted underneath the power and the presence of God, not trying to go ahead of him, not trying to um, do what he hasn't called us to do. And that takes a lot of patience and a lot of submission and a lot of, frankly, like grinding against my own soul of how I want things to go. Um, But we want God to lead this thing. This is God's church that we get to steward. So that's probably more than you asked for. That's that's the timeline and some updates. Nice. Well, um, so if you guys can stand right here and and let's just surround them and, and lay hands on them so that we can pray for them as they go. <clears throat> Don't be scared. Yeah, yeah. I showered this morning. Yeah. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for these men and for uh, just their heart to go to um, the nations to go to the people that you have. God, these are your people, ultimately. And I, and I thank you for their heart and their example of, of going. And just like you called us to do in, in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. God, I thank you for that, um, for the heart and the passion that you've given these men. And, um, and ultimately, the, the heart for their own home, the, the Southern California area, God. Um, and I just pray that as they go, as they 
um, spend these next nine, ten months praying and evangelizing and, uh, and everything, every small details and, and, and moments that go into that, God, I pray that you would bless them, that you would bless the work of their hands, that, that we would look 10, 20 years down the road to Rancho Cucamonga, and it is, a, it is exploding because of, uh, because of the work that they are doing right now, God. And uh, we pray that, that ultimately that they would find um, their security and their, their hope in you, because as we know personally as a church plant, it is, it's thankless, it's hard, it is really difficult at times. And, and so many times, God, we have, um, you have brought us through times where we wanted to give up. And so we pray that you would do the exact same thing with them, God, that you would carry them. Just as David prays in the Psalms that you set his feet on a rock, God, we pray that you would do that for these men that you would set up this church based on you, based on nothing else but you, God, and that you would bless the work of their hands and that you would be with them as they go and show up and, and let yourself, your name, your all of who you are be shown more mighty than anything else, God. In all of this, we lift you up, we praise you, and we give you the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you all. That's the sermon, the end. We should just turn this into an old-fashioned prayer meeting. I don't know about you, but I've come off that and I'm ready to roll. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip to Acts 12 with me. Um, Acts chapter 12. Um, Let me make a couple of comments while you guys uh, flip there. First off, um, a couple weeks ago, we commissioned uh, one of our pastors and my friends, Rob Daniels, to plant a church in Louisville, um, just up the road from here. And and, uh, uh, Pastor Matt was... He was giving a sermon, and he was talking about this idea of church planting in your own backyard, because a good chunk of our members at the Village and Fire Mound live in Louisville. I mean, I I don't know how high that percent is, probably 30, 40% of our members live in Louisville, and we're sending one of our own who has been in the city of Louisville for five years, working the ground, um, building up leaders, and he's taking, uh, we don't know the number of people that are going with him, and, 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 and this is just uncommon in the church planting world. I know men who have church planted and they have to sign like a non or yeah, like a, an agreement that they're going to plant outside of a certain radius so that they don't take any members with them. Um, and, and Matt just said this line that really went into my, my, my brain and my gut and it's just been sitting on me. He's, he's like, there's just far too much competition in the kingdom of God in today's day and age. Just far too much jockeying for position and power and for being known and those kind of things. And, and, and as I think about you, Mission Church, the fact that you are a church plant and you are giving to a church plant, that is humbling. I mean, that's honoring to the Lord. It shows that you guys are far more committed to God's agenda than you are to your own agenda. And you guys have set an example for me and for Stephen and for our team of how to operate in the kingdom of God, how to live as citizens of God's kingdom, how to lead his church. So thank you for that. Uh, Your generosity truly, truly is humbling, and I'm thankful for that. Second, um, this is the first time I've been in this building. This is awesome. 
So hard turn, right? Uh, I am thankful for you, and I'm sure you are thankful for this building. Uh, man, like when the service is over, you know what you're not going to do? Get up and fold chairs and start stacking them. Yeah, amen to that, right? Hallelujah. God be praised. Um, you know, I, when we were driving in, we're all kind of, we're, we're, looking, we're looking down the rows of warehouses. We're like, okay, it's not that one. Haven't been there yet. No, no, no. It's that one. And then you walk in, and I mean, what you guys have done with this place is stunning. Um, and, and my sincere prayer for you guys um, is that maybe you got to start buying all these up because this place is just going to start bursting at the seams with, people, with new disciples, with people who have come to know and follow Jesus Christ because of your witness uh, in this area, in this city, among these people. So uh, it's, just a, it's just a joy to be in this building with you uh, before we take off because, again, you've given us a vision for, for what we want to do and how we want to be uh, just in ways that we, we don't previously have. So... With that said, um, let me read Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19 over us and then pray. Acts 12, 1 through 19. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know that, or he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to stay silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Let me pray. Father, this is your word. Um, your word brings life. Your word brings joy. Your word brings transformation. So I pray today as we sing your word, as we hear your word read, as we talk about your word, that you would indeed do that. Would you intersect this place today and bring life and bring joy and bring transformation? Would you use me? 
And would you use your word to penetrate our hearts and minds for Christ Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, um, if I can be honest with you, the first time I read this text closely, um, you know, I've read through the book of Acts several times in my life, but when I really took a close look at this to begin studying this for what the Lord would say today, um, I ran through like kind of a, a full range of emotions. Like, this is kind of a fun text. It's a little bit interesting. There's some stuff going on in there that's unexplainable. Like, like uh, you know, I, I felt the, 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 probably the anger that Peter probably felt towards Herod as his friend James was martyred. Um, I, I felt the, the kind of probably fear that Peter felt as he's walking past four sets of guards and he gets put in these chains and he's in this prison guarded, um, probably knowing he's heading towards the same death that James just experienced. Um, I, I felt probably uh, the, 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 the um, wonder that Peter felt as he thinks he's in a dream as this angel comes and, 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 and rescues him from the prison. Um, I felt the, the amazement that Rhoda felt. You know, there's Peter at the door. No, 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 we just saw James die and Peter get locked up. This can't be Peter. The amazement that she felt, the, probably the cynicism or the skepticism that the rest of the disciples felt, like, no, that's just Peter's angel. It's not Peter. It's not Peter himself. Um, and, and then I felt just the, probably the worship that welled up within them as they realized this is Peter. Look at what God has done. And, and, and you laugh a little bit and you get angry, like, how could Herod do this? And, um, and it's really easy in these types of stories for us just to kind of get past it and miss what's really going on here. And what I really want for us to understand today, the main idea that I want us to walk away with is this, is, is, is when we participate in God's kingdom, we can expect opposition, but it's always worth it. So when we participate, when we are participants in God's kingdom, what God is doing on earth, we can expect opposition, but it's always worth it. And, and I'll flesh that out under three categories for us. First, we're going to talk about participation. Second, we're going to talk about opposition. And then we're going to talk about why it's worth it. I wish there was some alliteration there, but uh, there's not. Uh, it was Thanksgiving week. So um, my mind's working a little slower on, after all that, that, those carbs. Um, so we're going to talk about participating in God's kingdom, we're going to talk about the opposition we will face, and then we're going to talk about why it is absolutely worth it, even in the midst of opposition. And, and frankly, I wanted to be in this text for, for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons why is, as we are staring down our future, what we know for a fact is coming our way uh, is opposition. We know that we will be opposed, we know that we'll be persecuted, we'll probably suffer some, um, and we'll face some danger for what we're trying to do is follow the call of Christ and participate in his kingdom. And as we have seen over the last year, as we have laid the groundwork for this church plant, we have seen that it is absolutely worth it. It is absolutely worth it to pursue what we are pursuing, and it is absolutely worth it for you to pursue participating in God's kingdom. So first, let's look at participation in God's kingdom. So chapter 12, verse 1 says this, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands. So what Luke is going to do there is lay a little bit of like a, a chronological kind of literary moment about that time. And when I read, oftentimes the introduction to chapters or to, to paragraphs in the Bible, I just kind of blow past the introduction to get to the real part of the passage. But, but, but every bit of this word 
is from God and it has deep meaning. And what Luke is trying to do as he writes this book is point to what is going on around the disciples and around Jerusalem. He is pointing this, to this chronological reality that God's kingdom is advancing. And you merely need to jump back a few chapters in the book of Acts to see what God is doing. Like you, you can go back to chapter one and you see that the Holy Spirit des- descends on the disciples and they are commissioned to go witness to Jesus Christ and then you just see them following obediently to this command under compulsion of the Holy Spirit, making disciples. And and in chapter 7, you see just this this gospel sermon from Stephen where he just lays out very clearly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and then he meets a martyr's death, the first one in chapter 8. We see from Stephen And then in chapter 9, you see Saul get saved, who would become the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and church planter in church history, gets saved in chapter 9. In chapter 10, you see Peter go to Cornelius, who is a a really high-level centurion in the Roman army, and Cornelius and his entire household get saved, and they're baptized. And in chapter 11, I think Peter is so amped, he runs back to the church. He's like, I got to report to you all that's going on. Like, some of this is not explainable, but I'm going to try to explain. I'm going to try to verbalize all that I've witnessed, all that I've seen, all that God is doing among us. And he reports it to them. And then, then we have chapter 12, and then you turn the next page to chapter 13, and you see the church at Antioch selecting Paul and Barnabas, laying hands on them, and sending them out on the first Christian missionary journey in history which would set the precedent for all mission work from now, from then until now, now until Jesus returns. Like that is what Luke is saying just in these couple of words about that time. Like this is what's going on about that time. And and, and when I was studying it and I read that, I was like, okay, Luke, like that's all you got? Just about that time, a, a quick passing reference and phrase to what's going on. Like, how can you be so understated? How can you be so concise with your words? Wouldn't you want to say so much more than just about that time? And then I was thinking more about that, this, this understatement of what's, of what's going on. And then I was thinking, how much is not reported in this book? How much does Luke leave out Uh, because he can't possibly contain all of what God is doing just in one book of the Bible. And And then I was thinking, you know what? God's kingdom is always advancing, and it's always happening, uh, most often, I should say, happening in in kind of understated, unknown, um, back corner, down the end of the road type of ways. And and they're they're not very glamorous, it's not really sexy, it's not really huge, it's not really like mind blowing, but God's kingdom is always advancing, and his church is always growing, and most often he's doing it through unknown, understated, simple, weak humans and churches like us, like you and like me. And this should be really, really good news for us, right? Because when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I don't see the Apostle Paul. I don't see the greatest missionary in human history. I don't see the most bold and courageous person. I don't see the most educated person. I don't see the strongest person. I don't see the guy that has it all together. What I see is someone who is, who is weak, who is sinful, who is understated and unknown. And yet what I also see is 
is the grace of God in Christ Jesus that has saved me and is now working through me. And I think that's true of all of us here. God's kingdom is going forth. And it's not just out there, friends. We don't just need to look out there to see. It's happening here. It's happening in our midst. Even now, as we are talking, God's kingdom is advancing. And we, friends, are called to participate in that kingdom advance. God's plans will not be thwarted. He will not be stopped. His kingdom cannot be contained. It was not contained by the Roman government, and it cannot be contained by us. And so, friends, it would be best for us just to submit and to get on board with what God is doing. One of the illustrations that comes to mind often is Southern California, so, so roll with me. If the only beach you've ever been to is Galveston, then this probably won't make sense to you. But... Um, when you're in Southern California beaches, uh, the waves are pretty big, the water's cold, um, but they're great surfing spots. Uh, I grew up going to Huntington all the time. They have uh, a championship for surfing there every year, every summer. And, and, and what you see so often is like these, these world-class surfers that are in, in the type of shape I'll never be in, swimming out, battling the waves, and it's hard work. Like, even these guys who do it day in and day out are working really, really hard to get out past the waves so that they can begin to ride one back. And and, and I think so often for us, as, as God's kingdom is advancing, so often we're like the surfer trying to battle against the waves, go against the grain of what God is doing versus just submitting, turning around and riding the wave in and going with what God's doing. Uh, so, so, so uh, for us as friends, to, or us as a church to embrace, okay, this is what God's doing. I am called to participate in it, not to be an innocent bystander, not to be an observer, but me to raise my hand, to get in the game and say, okay, God, I will participate in this. And so we see from the book of Acts just a, a clear, clear guidelines of, of how to do this. Like, we see first and foremost, these men and these women in the book of Acts who started the church uh, exploding from the known world, uh, what you see first and foremost is they receive their citizenship as members of God's kingdom. Like, I think there's a breakdown sometimes when we go straight into what we're supposed to do for God before we realize who we are because of God. Who we are is so important to what we do. So often there's a breakdown right in the middle where we begin to act in ways that are incongruent with who we truly are. And who we truly are are citizens of God's kingdom. We are no longer enemies. We are no longer rebels. We are no longer those who are far off. But Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, has brought us in and appointed us as citizens in his kingdom. So we receive, first and foremost, like these first Christians, our citizenship, and then we see them being obedient to the commands of their king. They have now pledged their allegiance to King Jesus. And here's what happens so often. Those commands begin to come down from on high to us, and we realize, ooh, I don't really like that one. That one's a little bit hard. Okay, these ones over here, I can do these ones. This appeals to me. But these ones over here, I'm going to kind of leave those ones over there because I don't like those ones. Those ones make me uncomfortable. They hurt a little bit. They're kind of painful. But friends, we see these early Christians being utterly obedient to the commands of King Jesus, no matter the sacrifice. We saw Stephen get martyred. We saw James get martyred. 
they followed the commands of Jesus even to the point of death because Jesus died in their place. We see, we see these early disciples sharing the faith. We see them so often just saying, look at what the king has done for me and look what the king can do for you. We see them practicing the justice of this righteous king, working as his mediators on earth, levying his justice that he intends to bring, his righteousness that he intends to bring. And so here's what we can do, friends, as we see the kingdom advancing, as we see the church growing here, now, in our midst, among us, we can act like the early Christians because we are just like the early Christians. We participate, we receive our citizenship, we are obedient to Jesus' commands no matter what it means for us. We share the faith that the king has given us and we practice his justice here and now. And so the only question I have for you is, is what does your participation in the kingdom look like? Where are you sitting on the sidelines when God has called you to get in the game? Where are you reserving because that command is hard? Where are you withholding because you don't understand who Jesus has made you? And where can we jump into the game? Next, uh, let's look at opposition. And I wanted to lay a little bit of groundwork around the fact that God's kingdom is always advancing uh, because we live in kind of this, quote, enlightened day and age where we reside in by far the healthiest, the wealthiest, the most advanced, the most scientifically aware country in human history. We're living longer, we have happier lives, we're safer than ever, ever in human history. And so anytime a little bit of pain comes, anytime a little bit of opposition comes, we think that we're going the wrong way because our trajectory is always supposed to be like this, right? We're always supposed to be getting better. We're always supposed to be getting more pain-free. We're always supposed to suffer less. We're always supposed to face less resistance and opposition. That's what we think. That's how we've been discipled by the culture we live in and reside in and grew up in. And yet what we see here in chapter 12 of the book of Acts is as the kingdom is advancing and as the church is growing like crazy, the opposition increases. The persecution increases. The pain increases, not decreases, friends. And so maybe uh, even in, in kind of a, a little bit of a, 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 a gut punch type of way, maybe if our life doesn't have any opposition, we should have a little bit of trepidation about how much we're truly following Jesus. Maybe we should, like, maybe we should do a little bit of inventory on our own lives and our own pursuits and, and why maybe is our life so easy and why is it so uh, pain-free And so we see that this opposition continues to grow as the kingdom continues to grow because the people in the systems of this world that are completely marred by sin will not like and not receive the kingdom of God and the righteousness it represents. I mean, look at the moves we see by Herod here in this chapter when he begins to see his kingdom crumbling from beneath him. As more and more of his followers depart from him and head to Jesus, as more and more of his power begins to diminish, how does he react? He reacts by murdering James and throwing Peter in prison. And we see his underlying motivation in this text. First, we see him grasping at power. 
Like, why would he want to lose these followers and lose this territory? Because this little upstart called Christianity is spreading so much. He's grasping at power, but he misunderstands that a paradoxical truth of the New Testament is that true power is found in weakness, that true power is found in sacrifice, that true power is found not in exalting self, but exalting others. I mean, isn't this one of the primary lens through which we can see Jesus Christ's person and work? That the all-powerful Christ who created everything would descend and live among us that he would sacrifice to the point of his own death, that he would empty himself in humility for us. This is true power. This is true power. Herod didn't understand that. And we also see Herod's fear of man and people-pleasing on display. In verse 3, it says, And when he saw that it, it being James being murdered, pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. The Jews applauded the moves by Herod, and the applause of man is intoxicating. The applause of man is invigorating. Uh, Ed Welch has a book called, um, well, I'll paraphrase it because I don't know what it's called, but the concept is um, people are big and God is small. When people are big and God is small, that's what Herod suffered from. And that's why he opposed the kingdom of God, because he was more scared of the Jews than he was of God Almighty. He wanted to please the Jews more than he wanted to please his creator. And so Herod goes after two of the best from the church. James becomes the first apostle to meet a martyr's death. And then uh, Peter, who was the very voice and the face of the movement to this point, gets locked up. Herod is trying to cut down the church at the knees. He wants it to stop. And friends, praise God, it didn't work. Because the church is here because of, because of God moving, despite the opposition. But, but I want to camp out somewhere for a moment in the opposition section. Like, it's very easy for us to see kind of opposition, resistance, and persecution out there. Like, oh, especially kind of in, in some regions of the world where, where uh, Christianity is really, really hated. Uh, like, like the images of the Libyan Christians sitting on the, the shores of the beach uh, who, would, who would be martyred by ISIS soldiers. Like, those images, when I saw that come through, that's seared in my memory. Or the Coptic Christian um, church building that would be blown up in, in Egypt during their meeting, when they were meeting. Like that is something that just like really penetrates my soul. So it's, it's really easy for us to see opposition out there. But I want to invite us into our own hearts and see where the opposition lies within us. Like where are we in our little Herod-like ways opposing the kingdom of God? I think one of the great and subversive lies of the enemy in our kind of Western 21st century church movement is this. The lie goes like this. Follow Jesus and your life will become easy and amazing. <laughs> and the reason why that's a lie is because if you're following that Jesus, that's a false Jesus. And the reason why it's so subversive is because we are all bent towards desiring easy and pain-free and so we so desperately want that. 
But anyone who has any kind of common sense and has been following Jesus for like six seconds knows that's not true. Because the reality is that the gospel call is hard. That's why Jesus would tell us with his own words to count the cost before we follow him. Because it will be costly. The cost of discipleship is high and it is hard. And we continually come to these moments as followers of Jesus where the gospel call gets increasingly hard for us and we choose internally to oppose the kingdom advancing through us because of how hard it is. We become like Herod. We don't want to lay down our own perceived power and control over our own lives and our own kingdoms and our own homes and our own marriages and our own kids. We don't want to lay down that power, even though God has called us to lay ourselves in our power down for the good of others. Sometimes we so desire to please people, we become timid, and the gospel call would beckon us to be courageous. Our response is not like Herod's in this text, like, I hope no one's out there murdering and arresting people. But our our response is for us to just kind of stay quiet when God would tell us to speak up. Our response is to, to stay in a job or a career or a company that is completely antithetical to the gospel because we want the paycheck so bad. Our response is to stay in the same home and the same neighborhood and the same schools, even though God has said, I want you to go. I want you to go make disciples. But because it's safe and comfortable and familiar here, we don't want to go to what's foreign. These are little Herod-like responses of opposition that we all make. And so my question is, where are you? Where are we opposing God's kingdom? Where is God wanting to advance through you, through your own self-sacrifice that you are refusing to submit to? And let me just remind us all today, this was a good reminder for me this week as I was studying. When I, when I oppose God, like I am opposing the omnipotent God of the universe, the all-powerful God of the universe I am trying to fight against a battle that I'm, or fight a battle that I'm not called to fight. And all that's going to lead to is exhaustion. All that's going to lead to is pain. All that is going to lead through is me being anxious because I'm refusing to step into the joy that's found at the end of obedience. And so let us all examine our hearts to where we're opposing the kingdom and repent of those things, receive the grace that Jesus has for us, and then move forward. So do we we have any sports fans in here? Raise your hand if you're a sports fan. Good. We are in Texas, so. So we're familiar with all these kind of legendary rivals of the sport, right? There's the Army versus the Navy in college football, the Yankees versus the Red Sox, the Lakers versus the Celtics, there's Michigan versus Ohio State, there's uh, Oklahoma versus Texas, there's Cowboys and Eagles, and then there's Alabama football versus the entire world. Now, I think it's really easy for us in the midst of opposition to take on this rivalry mentality with those who are opposing us. 
or what is opposing us. Like I'm on this side, I'm on, I'm on God's side, and, and you're over there opposing God, and I need to do whatever it takes to defeat you, to win. Friend, Jesus has already won. We are not called to take on a rivalry mentality, but we are called to, like Jesus, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I've spent a lot of time in that text, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, trying to do some linguistic gymnastics to make it say something it doesn't say. I've tried to make it say, like, you know, go punch your enemies in the gut and, and avoid those who are persecuting you. That's not what it says. And Ephesians 6 comes to mind. I remember that we're not battling against flesh and blood, but we're battling against the powers and the principalities of Satan. And so even these apostles here were not fighting against Herod himself. They were not fighting against the flesh and blood that is Herod. They were fighting against what Herod represents, which would be satanic and demonic forces among them. That is why there is opposition to the kingdom of God, because of sin and Satan. And that is why the church so powerfully, in verse 5, responds to opposition like this. Earnest prayer was made for Peter to God by the church. So when we find ourselves in the midst of opposition, we must be like the church, not trying to go defeat our enemies through this kind of powerful posture, but rather to take on the, the most weak and prone position we can on our knees, on our face, before God, making intercession. Because prayer is effective. And we pray confidently to God. Notice they prayed to God. None of that nonsensical thoughts and vibes sent your way. This is actual prayer. To God, earnest prayer, faithful prayer, continuous prayer, fervent prayer, prayer that was full of belief and hope and faith and desire and yearning because here's what the, the disciples of Jesus knew is that their God sees, their God knows, and their God is powerful to act in their place. What we do not see from this church here is storming the palace of Herod we don't see them going to try to burn the prison down to get Peter out. We don't see them fighting against Herod himself, but rather they recognize that God has called them to what? Be still and I will fight for you. And we see the church praying corporately. They prayed together. And so mission, as you guys are on mission and you faced opposition, let me just beckon you to pray in the midst of it, to pray fervently, to pray confidently, to know that your God hears, sees, knows, and responds to you. So we see first that God's kingdom is always advancing. His church is always growing. And as that happens, we will, we can expect to face opposition. And now... Let me tell you why it is worth it, even in the midst of opposition, to keep pursuing your participation in the kingdom. Verses 6 through 19. I'm not going to reread all of them, uh, but just kind of retell the story a little bit to remind us. Uh, Peter is put in prison, and he's walking past all these guards, and, and he's locked up, and he falls asleep, and then this angel like kicks him in the ribs, wakes him up, 
and says, okay, let's go. The chains fall off. They walk past several sets of guards. They get to the gate. The gate swings open on its own accord, it says, for them. And then the angel's gone. Just like, okay, well, where'd you go? (laughs) You were helping me. Peter comes to, realizes that God had indeed delivered him, and he makes a run for Mary's house because he's alone, and it's dark, and he's cold, and he gets there. He knocks on the door. Rhoda, the servant girl, comes to the door, hears that it's Peter, and instead of opening the door for him, she like blacks out in her excitement, runs back to the house and says, like, Peter's here. The disciples are, are, are a little bit skeptical and say, no, 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 like, Peter, you, James got martyred. We know Peter's going to get martyred as well. So it's probably his angel who's just visiting us. He's dead. Trust us. And she's like, no, 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 I insist. It's Peter. Come check it out. And they go open the door, and, and behold, it's Peter. And he comes in. He says, hold on, be quiet, guys. Like, they're coming after us. Be quiet. But they're all amazed and they're out in wonder at God and they're celebrating. And, the, and then Herod, uh, the next day, finds out that Peter's gone. None of the guards know what happened. Uh, and so he puts them on death row in response for their failure, uh, even though they could not have uh, succeeded in their task. And they're all confounded at God. Like, this is the story here. And, and I think sometimes, uh, if you're a little bit like me, when some of this crazy stuff happens, in all honesty, you just kind of want to get to the next chapter where you can logically begin to explain some things. Like, I can't explain to you what the angel looked like and how the angel acted and, and exactly how Peter's chains fell off and he got out the prison and what the guards were doing. Were they in a trance? Were they just, I don't know the answer to that. But rather than rushing past the texts we can't explain, let's wade into the mystery together. I am really bad at that, friends. I am really bad at that. But, but the truth is, if we are following and worshiping a God who can be fully explained, he ceases to be God. And so let us together with wonder wade into the waters of not exactly being able to explain everything. Because not all of your life is explainable. Your salvation is not explainable. Why would God choose me, a sinner who was far off? Why would he choose to save me, the chief of sinners? That's not explainable. In some senses, it's mysterious, but praise God for the mystery. And so here is why opposition is worth it. Even if we can't fully understand all of what exactly happened, we can see some absolute truths about our God here. First, we see the power of God. It is magnified in the midst of opposition. Like this angel's actions to to powerfully uh, release Peter's chains and to deliver him from there, this is utterly miraculous. The power of God is magnified in the opposition we will face. How else can we have the strength and the energy to keep putting one foot in front of the other outside of the the fact that our powerful God has put his power by his spirit within us? God's power is magnified in the midst of opposition. Second, we see God's, the peace of God kind of enveloping Peter in the midst of his opposition. Like, did you read the note that says Peter was sleeping? Man, I have never faced anything close to that. Watching one of my best friends die, getting locked up, walking past all the guards, knowing probably the next morning I'm going to be executed as well, and then just went to bed. 
I mean, there are some days when I, I merely have like a hard meeting I know is coming the next day, and I'm up all night trying to, you know, get some notes down and wring my hands, okay, how can I make this work and those kind of things. But here's what, what Peter recognized, is that only an omnipotent and sovereign God can produce that kind of peace in him. It's like Jesus on the water, right, sleeping in the midst of the waves, submitted to the sovereignty of the Father. It's Philippians 4. It's receiving the peace of God because we recognize that God is sovereign over all of our life and he is powerful to move in the midst of all of it. So I don't know, I don't know what kind of circumstances and, and, and needs you came in here carrying with you today, but here's what I can say to you is that God is sovereign over those things and he is powerful to move in the midst. Of, even if they don't change, God is powerfully moving in the midst of them. One of my lead pastors at the village, his name is Brian Miller. Uh, Brian Miller has become a close friend and a, and a pastor and a mentor to me in a lot of ways over the past few years. And initially, when I met Brian, um, I was really perplexed by him for a number of reasons. But here's the primary reason I was perplexed by him. I've been in some rooms with, with Brian uh, and others where some really, really hard and terrible news has been given. And I've been in some rooms with Brian where some like crazy, exciting news was given. And here's Brian in the midst of all of it. He's just steady. He's celebrating the victory of the Lord. But here is what, what's going on in Brian's heart. Brian is absolutely aware of the sovereignty of God. He is submitted to the sovereignty of God in all things, and he is trusting in God's providence that God would deliver him in the midst of the really, really hard news. He is steady, unwavering, faithful, and that perplexed me because that's not me. But he received the peace that can only come from God in the midst of hard times. And I want to be more like Brian, and I want to be more like Peter. So first, we see the power of God in opposition. We see the peace of God in the midst of opposition. And then we see the wonder at God as he is exalted in the midst of opposition. Like, do you, like the believers opening the door and seeing that Peter was there, and they were amazed, the word says, at the majesty and the might and the miraculous power of God. In the midst of opposition, our God will be exalted. And I wonder how often some of us in this room, me included, are kind of numb to the majesty of God. There's a book out there called Yawning at Tigers. It's about us kind of being so used to the majesty and the power and the might of God in our lives that we become numb to it and we kind of yawn at it. Friends, that's sin. That is sin, and, and, and that's, that's a sin I too frequently commit. Like, I wish my reaction was a little bit more like Rhoda's. Like, whoa, Peter's here. I gotta go tell everyone. Like, have you ever had something that's so exciting and so wonderful and majestic that you kind of, like, lost your mind for a second? Like, okay, this is gonna sound really weird or really bad, but 2002, game seven of the MLB World Series, the Anaheim Angels defeated the San Francisco Giants. Barry Bonds was on the Giants. If you don't know who Barry Bonds is, do a little bit of history. He should never be in the Hall of Fame. He's a steroider. Um, 
I grew up a huge Angels fan, and I was young at that point, and my mom comes and takes me out of school, and my brother out of school early, and she says, hey, we're going to the game. I'm like, what? We're going to the World Series? No way. And then they won it. And then I don't know what happened after that. Like, I have to go back and watch a video to see, like, Tim Salmon, who played for the Angels, has this World Series trophy, and he's running sprints around the stadium. But I was so excited. I, like, kind of blacked out for a second because it was so crazy and so cool. Like, sometimes I wonder if we should ask God to have a little bit more of that at what he's doing in our midst. Like, as he's saving, there's nothing more miraculous than that. As you see new disciples come into the kingdom of God, like, we should lose our minds in celebration. As we see God delivering people, as we see God doing what only God can do, we should be in wonder and awe at him. And that can happen in the midst of opposition, making opposition worth it. And then we see uh, kind of the, the confoundment of those who were following Herod, those who were a part of Herod's kingdom. There was no little disturbance among them, the text says. They were confused. This is not explainable. Again, it wasn't explainable to them. And friends, that will happen in the midst of opposition as you receive the peace of God, as the power of God works through you, as God is exalted in, in the midst of your opposition. You know what's gonna, what it's going to do to those around you? It's going to perplex them. It's going to confuse them. They're going to be a little bit confounded, and they're going to ask you, give me an account for the hope that's within you. And you have an opportunity to share the faith, making your opposition worth it. And then, as we see in verse 11, we see the deliverance of God on display. Peter came to himself and he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from the Jewish people, from what, all that the Jewish people were expecting. In the midst of our opposition, sometimes God delivers us in mighty and powerful ways, and we get to see God do that. We get a front row seat to what God's doing in the world. This is incredible. And so why is uh, us continuing to participate in the kingdom even as we face opposition worth it? It's worth it because it puts our God on display. It's not us that is on display. It's not those who are creating the opposition on display. It is our God on display. Friends, this is a story about God. This is a story about God's might. This is a story about God's peace. This is a story about God's deliverance. This is a story about what God can do and has done for you and for me. And he intends for himself to be glorified, for himself to be worshiped, for himself to be on display. And this is good news because that will be like a city on the hill drawing more and more and more to God. This is good news for you, for me, and for this city. God on display. And here is what we all know, but sometimes need to remind ourselves of, is, is money does not have the power to bring dead back to life. Money cannot produce peace within our souls. Sex does not have the power to restore broken relationships. Success does not have the power to blot out our transgressions. Alcohol does not have the power to lift the shame and the, 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 the guilt we experience deeply within our souls. Only an omnipotent God possesses the power to accomplish those things. Only an omnipotent God possesses the power to accomplish those things. And God wants to accomplish those things through us. 
We are his vessels to display his power. Our job is not to produce the response in those around us. Our job is simply to display the power. Our job is not to produce peace in our children, in our wives, in our husbands, in our friends. Our job is not to produce that peace. Our job is merely to speak truth about peace that can come from God, and then God can work in their midst. This is why participating in the kingdom, even when it brings opposition, is absolutely worth it. So let me, uh, let, me be, let me end like this. If we can be truthful, deep down in our souls, each of us wants to be God. That's what sin has done to us. We want to be, play the role of God. We want to be the ones who defeat the opponents. We want to be the ones who are worshipped. We want to be the ones who are exalted. We want to be the ones who advance our own agenda and our own kingdom. We want to receive the prayer and the adoration of others. But let me just bid you today to relent of that, to release that. That is the Lord's job. That is the Lord's job. And he does his job perfectly. Let us do ours as best we can. Let us participate in his kingdom. Let us share the faith. Let us receive our citizenship. Let us practice his justice. Let us make disciples. And then in the midst of opposition, as it comes, let us receive the power of God and the peace that comes with it. And let us magnify our God in the middle of it. May our God be worshiped as we participate in his kingdom. God is powerful. We are not. Let's let him be powerful and let us receive his power by his spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for stories like this in your, in your Bible. Stories that are hard. Stories that can't be explained. Stories that challenge us but stories that give us hope. Stories that let us know we're not alone in the opposition we're facing. Peter faced it. Paul faced it. James faced it. Many in this room are currently facing it. We are not alone. We have each other, and ultimately we have you by your spirit dwelling within us. And so, God, I pray for those of us that are kind of sitting on the sidelines watching your church grow, I pray, God, you would give us the courageousness and the bravery to just step in, take one step to begin participating in your kingdom. I pray for those who are in the midst of deep opposition, God, that you would comfort them in the middle of the affliction. You would bring a peace that can only come because you are an all-powerful God. And I pray that all of us who are following you would find that it is worth it because you are worth it when we participate in what you are doing in the world, we get you. We get more of you. It is worth it, God. So would you be magnified in our midst, even as we finish this service and as we go from this place. In Christ's name, for his sake, amen.